There's um, an ancient teaching that I've heard many times over the years. Every time I've heard it and every time I've shared this teaching with others, I find something new, some aspect that re-inspires. Maybe some facet of a fresh new beauty appears. And even sometimes a previously unseen profound peace shines through. Each of us sitting here in this meditation hall, in this moment, are experiencing a great gift. The protection, the grace, the great blessing of having obtained a precious human existence. It's rare, this precious human existence, and especially rare from the standpoint of the Dhamma. Those who have a precious human existence with all of the conditions, opportunities, and blessings in place to have connected with and to be able to practice the Dhamma are as rare as daytime stars. An ancient metaphor that tells us that if all the world were water and a golden ring two feet in diameter was cast out upon this watery world to be blown about by the winds, a blind turtle surfacing once every hundred years would put its neck through this ring more easily than it is for one to obtain a precious human existence. And yet here we are. What great good fortune, or in more Buddhist language, what good kama. A helpful piece that I finally heard and got after some years of occasionally receiving this teaching is that cultivating a proper, or we could say cultivating the appropriate right appropriately right motivation in relation to our Dhamma practice is strongly aided and supported by rejoicing in the fact that we have obtained a precious human existence and have decided to pursue the causes of happiness rather than pursuing the causes of suffering. This brings to light what Nisargadatta speaks about as being selfish in the right way. This permission to rejoice in the fact that one is alive and connected to the Dhamma. Truly a blessing that 
lightens the heart and helps to set the tone for practice that is actually one of the factors necessary for liberation. The factor in the mind, in the heart, of joy. Many people, I think much of the time, view experience and view their life as a a string of blessings and or a string of curses through our practice, our life is our practice. We learn to not get caught up in the attachment to seeming blessings and aversion to seeming curses. With practice as the ground of our life, we learn to relate to life and to view life as a kind of continual challenge in relationship to the Dhamma, or as a continual opportunity to deepen our practice and understanding, an ongoing opportunity to awaken. So a pretty commonplace and mundane illustration. Last year, it became clear that I needed a crown on one of my molars. So maybe from one point of view, a curse. I'm severely allergic to all local and some general anesthetics. So Novocaine or any other kind of anesthetic can't be used with dental work. So maybe another curse from a particular point of view but I have a deep and strong practice, definitely a great blessing. The dental appointment presented me with quite a challenge, the challenge of continually relaxing, staying open to the experience of the moment, focusing and connecting with all that was going on in my mouth, and noticing the constant change of each sensation that was manifesting with a greater or lesser intensity. Being right there with its beginning all the way through to its ending. As soon as I would lose my concentration and lose my mindfulness, ignorance moved in immediately. What was merely unpleasant, or very occasionally pleasant, sunk into disliking or liking. And a seemingly untenable moment was born, though fortunately this never lasted more than a couple of seconds. It was, in moments, a great surprise to me how easily it was to be there. As long as I was 
clearly and purely present just with what was happening. Time lost its ordinary parameters. I wasn't waiting for the end of anything. And in fact, there were surprising moments of feeling I could stay here forever. And that would be okay. So, what's a curse? What's a blessing? As this precious human existence, our life as the practice of the Dhamma takes deeper and deeper root, its blessings begin to permeate all the corners of our life. So spending time together this evening, exploring at least some of the breadth, depth of the great blessings of this precious human existence that we all share. Beginning with the fact that just being in a human body is actually a remarkable, rare occurrence in the light of the amazing variety and numbers within all of the various life forms that inhabit the planet. I had this brought home to me in a very practical and direct way about eight or nine years ago. One summer afternoon in the one-room casita that I was living in at that time in Taos, New Mexico. I'd come home from a busy day with about two hours to prepare for offering the weekly Dhamma talk at the meditation center that evening. A few moments after sitting down, I heard what sounded like rain coming down the wood stove pipe. It was a bright and sunny day outside. No rain cloud just over the house. Puzzling, very puzzling. Very shortly, hundreds, thousands of tiny, red ants started coming out of all of the cracks in the bottom of the wood stove pipe and out through the wood stove doors and all of its seams. Soon a large mound of minute, lively, but slow-moving red ants were in the middle of my room, with some of them instinctively beginning to slowly make their way towards the windows. Amazement, some degree of fascination, and horror, actually, were the first states that showed up in my mind. The feeling of being one in the midst of many got stronger and stronger. Seemingly, all of a sudden, my home was now also their home. And it seemed clear, at least to me, that we wouldn't be able to live there together. I also felt and knew very clearly 
that I couldn't kill these creatures, none of them. Along with all of this, a state of frustration and a coming and going of anger bubbled underneath. I was to be giving a Dharma talk very soon. But now I had to deal with this. No time to prepare. What to do? It became quite clear that I wouldn't even be able to leave the house and go to the meditation center until this dilemma was solved. That if I left now, when I returned, the house would be the ant's domain. And then arising again, an irritable state of mind and body, inspired by the repeating thought, there's no time, no space to think about what to speak about in the Dhamma talk. Much dukkha. The strongest and most visceral experience soon became the feeling of being smaller, much less significant than the ants. Just this little lone human, clearly not in control of things. To make a somewhat complex story uh, short and simple, I vacuumed up all the ants, took the vacuum bag outside, cut it open so they could all escape out into the great outdoors, where, as never before, I viscerally knew that there were billions, maybe trillions, of ants all over this planet, with humans being Few, very few, actually, in the variety and the vast numbers of living beings. A realization very quickly dawned. I had just been offered the perfect teaching and the best preparation for the evening's Dhamma talk. And so within a few moments, I found myself speaking spontaneously, and with a a joyous heart about our precious human existence, the interconnectedness of all life, compassion, inspired by what had just occurred. It's a great good fortune a blessing to have a human body. Our human body is the basis for practicing the Dhamma, the basis for crossing over the ocean of samsara to the other side, to the side of liberation, crossing over to awakening out of the sleep of confusion, sorrow, distress. Chariputta once asked the Buddha about the difference in numbers between humans and other living beings. 
the Buddha responded by comparing this to the dust on his fingernail versus the dirt of the whole earth. For most of us, our human existence manifests as just the right balance within the challenges of the difficulties in our lives and the everyday ordinary pleasures and joy, joyful experiences we meet in our life. More of one or the other during various periods and at points along the way, but a mix and a balance as it all unfolds. Because we weren't born into and aren't living in the torment of constant, relentless, unrestful states of physical and mental suffering, we have the blessing of being able to practice the Dhamma. We know from our own experience that when we're experiencing intense physical pain, it can be very, very difficult and sometimes seemingly impossible to be mindful unless a very strong and deep capacity for concentration and mindfulness is firmly established in our heart, in our mind. The powerful mental energies of anger or fear have at times taken each one of us over. And so we have a small taste and a knowing of that kind of mental torment. And that if it were constant, if it was relentless, how it would not be possible to practice the Dhamma. Truly we're blessed by not living with this kind of torment and by living in a culture and a time in human history where, where and when the Dhamma is alive and easily available. Living at a time when a Buddha has appeared and the teachings and the practices have been and continue to be transmitted understood, realized, and passed on through the kindness, faith, and devotion of many, many people. The range of our precious human existence and capacity is varied and wide. Years ago, when I first went to India, early one morning on a street corner in Benares, I heard someone singing beautiful bhajans, spiritual songs. I looked around and found the singer, a young man with a bright and beautiful face and a tiny, deformed, shrunken and twisted but clean and fresh body. He was sitting on the ground, singing his heart out. I stood and listened. 
my heart going out to meet his. Every morning for the next few days while I was in Benares, I went to be with him, to listen and to receive the teachings of love, faith, and devotion through the beauty of his voice and the beauty of his being. There is the possibility of great strength and beauty of heart, great strength and beauty of mind in the blessing of our precious human existence. Because we don't constantly live in the so-called heaven realms, adrift on the endless currents of desire, our every sensual whim and endless seeming needs always being met, being blindly caught up in this, and thus forgetting about the Dhamma, forgetting about practice, not a shred of mindfulness anywhere in sight. Because this isn't the way it is for us, is actually a blessing. Of course, for many of us, the dream might be that we could have this kind of life, that this is it, that this is what would really make us truly happy. When life is going well and we're getting what we need on the relative plane, the mundane level, we sometimes forget the way of things and literally forget about practice. Forgetting that this level of momentary satisfaction is totally dependent on and at the mercy of constant and insatiable desire, which is based in forgetting about, ignoring the moment-by-moment ceasing of the feeling of being content because of ignoring the truth that every single pleasant, pleasing experience quite naturally comes to an end. The so-called heaven realms can very quickly transform into a realm of unrest, a realm of stress, with this forgetting. What a Dhamma blessing it is to at least some of the time not be constantly adrift on the endless and forgetful currents of desire. The great protection and blessing of having one's senses intact, thus being able to understand and practice the Dhamma, and having a karmic link with the Dhamma, thus having the desire to practice it, is clearly a blessing. It's said that the karmic cause of our precious human existence 
is the observance of a completely pure ethical system. This is a very rare occurrence. Not many people live this way. But if we look at our lives honestly and non-judgmentally, impersonally recognizing and rejoicing in our favorable circumstances, we can connect with our natural and long-standing ethical, caring relationship to beings, humans and otherwise, even though it hasn't been perfectly pure in every single moment. If we look at our own heart, our own mind, honestly, non-judgmentally, impersonally recognizing and rejoicing in our favorable circumstances, we'll connect with our wholesome desire to practice the Dhamma in the service of continuing to develop the heart of living harmlessly, living generously, living wakefully in relationship to all living beings. This is one of the great blessings of the Dhamma. The Tibetans compare this precious human existence to a wish-fulfilling gem. They speak of those who have obtained this gem, that to not set out on the path to freedom with the intention to completely be free of the suffering of conditioned cyclic existence and obtain the permanent peace of awakening would be more wasteful than a poor woman or man finding a house filled with precious jewels and not doing anything meaningful with them, but just frittering them away little by little. This is from Japanese Zen poet Nanao Sakaki. If you have time to chatter, read books. If you have time to read, walk into the mountain, desert, and ocean. If you have time to walk, sing songs and dance. If you have time to dance, sit quietly, you happy, lucky idiot. And from Shantideva, a century Buddhist monk. Leisure and endowment are very hard to find. And since they accomplish what is meaningful for humanity, if I do not take advantage of them now, how will such a perfect opportunity come about again? Those who wish to destroy the many sorrows of their conditioned existence 
those who wish all beings to experience a multitude of joys, and those who wish to experience much, much happiness, should never forsake the awakening mind. The moment an awakening mind arises in those fettered and weak in the jail of cyclic existence, they will be named a child of the Sugatas. The Sugata is an epitaph for the Buddha. And will be revered by humans and gods of the world. It's like the supreme gold-making elixir, for it transforms the unclean body we have taken into the priceless jewel of a Buddha form. Therefore, firmly seize this awakening mind. All other virtues are like plantain trees, for after bearing fruit, they simply perish. Yet the perennial tree of the awakening mind unceasingly bears fruit, and thereby, and thereby flourishes without end. Like entrusting myself to a brave man or woman when greatly afraid, by entrusting myself to this awakening mind, I shall be swiftly liberated. to intuitively, deeply, clearly know what one's absolute priority is. And not putting a frame around it, not concretizing it, not making it into a concept, but knowing it as a clear movement, a vibration, so to say, from the core of being. This is a great blessing. Having the good fortune to be around those who live in, extremely, in the extremely rare ambiance of the purity of metta, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity, and who abide within a deep understanding grounded in the observance of a very pure ethical system is a blessing. A blessing that has the possibility of being transformative. A few years ago, I had the great honor of teaching a three-day retreat in Crestone, Colorado with Venerable Mahagosananda. Some of you may know him, or at least know of him. Maha, which means great, and he's fondly uh, often called Maha, and Gosananda, which translates as the sound of bliss, is from Cambodia and is considered to be the patriarch of Cambodian Buddhism. He's maybe best known for the Dhammayatras, the long step-by-step -step walks for peace that he led through the Cambodian countryside and the villages and the refugee camps during the Vietnam War. He's now 92 years old. He's been a monk for 78 years, since he was 14 years old. 
Mahagosananda is an incredibly glowing and light, light in the energy that he emanates, human being. He feels like one of the purest, one of the lightest beings that I've ever encountered. So simple, so unpretentious, so rare, a being of pure heart. During the time of our teaching together, a sweet, deep connection came to pass between us. The evening before the retreat was to begin, I was taken into his quarters to say hello. We didn't know each other very well. And we hadn't seen each other for over a year. So I didn't know if he would remember me. Being such an old man, these days there are quite a few things that he doesn't remember. So I recalled to him the last time that we'd met, and I asked him if he remembered me. And he said, oh yes, oh yes, I remember your nose. (laughs) Well, I burst out laughing and said, well, it must be quite a nose. And he just looked at me and smiled, and he said, it's a good nose. Two years ago, just about at this time of the year, while I was teaching at IMS, I went to visit Maha, kind of feeling like I was going to see my Dhamma grandfather, who calls me mom. So I asked him at one point during that visit um, why he called me mom, when in fact he's so much older than I am. His response was, We have all been each other's mother at some point, and so you're mom. So that afternoon, at a Cambodian temple that's not too very far from here, mom and grandfather sat and drank tea, laughed a bit, talked a little history about his life, talked about the three-month retreat that was going on at IMS at the time, and how all the yogis were practicing so diligently. And mostly talked about the Buddha Dhamma. Being with Venerable Mahagosananda is a most precious gift, a blessing that opens and lightens the mind, the heart, a blessing that he so selflessly offers, simply through his being. Or maybe more accurately, a blessing that he offers in simply being. I found it quite amazing and surprising that when I've been with him and afterwards, my heart feels like it's filled up my whole body, filled up my whole being, and beyond, and it goes on and on and on. Just before I left IMS uh, for the visit with uh, Venerable Mahagosananda, 
A staff member gave me a small sticky note asking Maha to send a blessing to all the three-month yogis for their efforts. I stuck the note onto an envelope that I gave him at the beginning of our visit and that he had set down on a small table that sat between us. Every time he caught sight of the note, he would read it again, put his hands together, and offer a blessing to all of the yogis. Just like the blessing of being in Venerable Mahagosananda's presence goes on and on, so do the blessings of his words. And so I pass his blessing along to you as a conduit from the Mahagosananda, a conduit from the great sound of bliss. May all of the yogis practicing at the forest refuge reach all the stages of enlightenment. May each one become a fully enlightened one, an arhat. May each one be a fully enlightened Buddha. From the sound of great bliss. In closing this evening's talk, and again as a conduit, this time for the words of the Buddha, who is often referred to as the Blessed One, I'd like to offer you the Mangala Sutta, the great discourse on blessings. This uh, sutta is held in very high esteem in all Buddhist countries. Different from the conventional ideas of blessing, these 38 blessings are ethical and spiritual in their nature. It's said that during the time of the Buddha, the issue of what constitutes a blessing that makes life truly happy came to be the concern of the devas those beings who live in the heavenly live on, at the heavenly plane of existence it's said that for 12 years they argued about it and couldn't come to any agreement some thought that blessings referred to what's pleasurable to the senses things that are pleasing to the eyes ears nose taste touch but not all of them agreed. Finally, it said that the king of the devas suggested that the Buddha be consulted. So, consequently, in the middle of the night, a certain being of astounding beauty, lighting up the entire grove where the Buddha was, approached the Buddha 
As she drew near, she bowed down to the Blessed One and stood to one side. As she stood there, she addressed him in verse as follows. Many devas and human beings have pondered on blessings, desiring their well-being. Tell me the blessings supreme. In the Buddha's response, to associate not with the foolish, to be with the wise, to honor the worthy ones, this is a blessing supreme. To reside in a suitable location, having done good deeds in the past, to set oneself in the right direction. This is a blessing supreme. Great learning and craft, a discipline well-trained in, well-spoken words. This is a blessing supreme. Caring well for one's parents, looking after spouse and children, Engaging in harmless work, this is a blessing supreme. Selfless giving, living the just life, open hands to all relatives, blameless action, this is a blessing supreme. to cease and abstain from causing harm, refraining from intoxicants, being diligent in virtuous practices. This is a blessing supreme. Being respectful and humble, content and grateful, hearing the Dhamma at the right time. This is a blessing supreme being patient and composed, associating with contemplatives, discussing the Dhamma at the right time. This is a blessing supreme. Living austerely and purely, seeing the noble truths, realizing Nibbana, this is a blessing supreme. A mind unshaken, when touched by the world, when touched by the ways of the world, sorrowless, stainless, and secure, this is a blessing supreme. Those who have fulfilled all these are everywhere invincible, everywhere finding well-being. Theirs is the blessing supreme. So let's just sit for a moment.
may the merit of our practice be joined with all the wholesome actions of the three times, past, present, and future. And together, may it all be dedicated to the welfare, the happiness, and the liberation of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.